What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. Andrew Steinwald is the managing partner of Sifermion, an investment firm focused on the NFT ecosystem. All opinions expressed by Andrew and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Sifermion. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Sifermion or related entities may maintain positions in the assets discussed in this podcast. My guest today is Paul Kolhas, who is the founder of Molecule, as well as a member of VitaDAO and SciDAO. Molecule is a decentralized biotech protocol that is democratizing biopharma research and development. This one is going to blow your mind. We chat how drug development currently works, the monopolistic nature of drug development, the open source pharma movement, longevity research DAOs, psychedelic medicine DAOs, how the Molecule team is building the future of decentralized science, and so much more. This episode offers a rare sneak peek into the future of medicine. Please enjoy my conversation with Paul. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Hi, Andrew. Yeah, thank you so much for the invite on the show. And uh, hi to everyone who's listening. Um, my name is Paul Kohlhaas. I'm the, the founder of a, a new protocol in DAO called Molecule. Um, and my background is um, <laughs> it's pretty atypical to be working on something that like straddles the let's say the biotech space. Um, but I've been actually working in a in a crypto space for a really long time. Um, so uh, when I was like a, a teenager, like 16, 17, 18, um, I spent a lot of time in like online biohacking forums. Um, and these were some of the forums that like splintered off um, actually harm reduction sites like like Arrowhead. Uh, so Arrowhead, for example, was a large um, uh, kind of collection of trip reports on um, on psychedelics run in the, the public domain. Uh, a lot was um, kind of pioneered by Alexander Shulgin, who was, um, was the original inventor of MDMA, uh, and then went on to discover, actually worked at a pharma company um, as he was doing that, and the pharma company didn't think his work was valuable. Uh, I think such as organizations such as MAPS are really proving that, that thesis to be completely wrong. Uh, but he went on to discover hundreds of different, uh, very strange, novel psychedelic compounds, uh, many of which are actually being actively um, researched in therapeutic use, use cases today. Uh, and so these communities that I was a part of uh, essentially were uh, exploring these compounds in a very open fashion. Um, back then, these were all like unscheduled substances and essentially research chemicals. Um, and I found that really fascinating, this kind of open source nature of, of drug discovery and, and drug development. And as I got deeper into those communities, I realized, hey, at the fringes here, there's um, diabetes communities, for example, that are developing their own or trying to develop their own open source insulin synthesis methods. Um, and some of these communities actually then gave birth to the open insulin movement in the United States, which is now fighting uh, to provide, yeah, very cheap and affordable insulin uh, in, in made in clandestine labs uh, across the U.S. In other cases, you had cancer um, patient communities, for example, that said, um, hey, guys, there's a drug here on the U.S. market that I need to kind of survive and treat my cancer. It costs 150K out of pocket. Uh, I make 30K a year, <laughs> uh, but I have an Internet connection. Um, and then the interesting thing is those communities would source their kind of these base chemicals uh, from the same Chinese manufacturers that kind of the psychedelic research uh, folks got their base chemicals from. So you have these big. Chinese um, and, and South Korean chemical manufacturers that back then didn't really care what you what you asked them to produce as long as it wasn't patented and as long as it was not a scheduled substance. 
found that really fascinating and at the same time started looking at the macroeconomics of the U.S. pharmaceutical system. So these are like the early days of the U.S. opiate crisis, and it started becoming apparent that, um, to me, that th there's something fundamentally wrong here, that on the one side, there's um, people online that are kind of being driven to, um, to um, engage in very kind of, in some cases, dangerous behavior, kind of self-testing compounds on themselves, and often out of sheer necessity. And on the other side, you have a, a large pharmaceutical system that's kind of fundamentally um, failing to deliver what I would say is patient-centric healthcare. It's so actually providing medicine that is affordable by the general public. Um, I went on and um, uh, studied, and I, I came looking at this whole thing because, like, also the people in my family kind of were prescribed like early um, ADHD medication early on and antidepressants, and I just felt like um, it wasn't really serving them. Um, yeah. And so I went on and studied uh, economics um, at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland, uh, which is a really, uh, yeah, really rigorous business school. Um, and during my time there, um, I started trading biotech stocks. I kind of had a couple of friends. We were kind of exchanging stock tips, and I found that quite fascinating. Uh, so biotech stock typically tends to trade just on the, the value of the asset. And it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like the burn rate of the company as it's trying to develop this asset. And it's typically just like this line downwards, pretty steady that um, essentially represents the burn rate of the company. And then you have positive data emerge and it does a 5x or 10x in a day. Um, or you have negative data emerge and it does like minus 80, 90% in a day. Uh, and if you think about that, that's um, like a fundamental market inefficiency. So like as I was studying, I found that really interesting, like looking at, at, like at systems, at um, systemic inefficiencies and how capital markets behave. Um, and then a friend of mine did an internship at a company called Bitcoin Swiss, uh, which at the time was the first, yeah, I think the first Bitcoin brokerage in Europe. So that was like mid 2013. Uh, and so he started telling me about Bitcoin. And I think as it's happened to, to many of us, um, you kind of very quickly fall down this, this rabbit hole. Um, I, I taught myself how to code because um, yeah, I then I then kind of found open source software really interesting and the way that these various cryptocurrency reddits were kind of like sprawling and you'd have someone fork, um, let's say the Bitcoin code, a new coin would appear. I still remember MasterCoin uh, and then, uh, yeah, the first like when the Ethereum white paper emerged, I was also a big fan of Dogecoin in the early days just because I found it really funny. Um, and then, yeah, I finished my studies in, in economics um, and actually moved to South Africa, um, worked briefly in, in private equity there. And then, uh, but during my time there, this is like um, mid-2015, was already pretty knee, like knee deep in just in, in, in crypto. And yeah, I found it really fascinating. And then um, started my first company called Linen Labs at the age of 23. Uh, just really started building out early applications on, on Ethereum um, and doing Ethereum training. Um, and then did a couple of projects for, for larger, larger companies that were, that actually at the time were able to, to pay, um, for development services or that were trying to understand what's going on in this decentralized space, um, became good friends with someone called Simon de la Rubier, who I would say is like the grandfather of, of bonding curves. Um, so I've also done a lot of writing about bonding curves over the years because they're really interesting mechanisms at, um, at curating assets and discovering information. Um, and then briefly worked at, at Consensus um, through, actually not briefly, no, I did a project with UNICEF and Digital Identity uh, in, in, in Cape Town and then uh, started working at Consensus. This is early 2017. Um, 
And yeah, at the tail end of working at Consensus, I was doing a lot of work on data attestations um, and kind of trying to figure out how we could attach data attestations to digital identities and then also going into data data marketplaces. So, And there we were looking at NFTs, among other things. And then I had this aha moment where I kind of um, thought, hey, what if instead of attaching a picture of a cat to an NFT, we would attach a composition of matter pattern? Um, so like the essentially the fundamental IP that describes a new drug or a new therapeutic. Um, yeah, and that kind of gave the impetus to, to what I'm building today. So it's like going back almost, yeah, four years. Wow. Okay. That is incredible. So we have biohacking, psychedelics, open source, you know, creation of medicine. You study economics, you're trading uh, biotech stocks. Like, like I, I can definitely see how, how all of this is leading up to what you're working on today. It's, it's really, really incredible. So, okay. So going all the way back to when you were a teenager, how did you get interested in biohacking? And to clarify, is that like, you know, I, I uh, am putting some sort of device in my arm or something like that? Or what exactly about biohacking were you so interested in? Mm, I was really interested in, uh, on the one side, how nutraceuticals, um, certain chemicals or psychedelics, for example, can just fundamentally alter your consciousness. So there's also there's a huge supplement market. Uh, on the one side, for example, it's very active in, in bodybuilding. Um, so that's actually a form of biohacking. It's like, how do you hack your, your system to behave in a different way? So lots of bodybuilders, for example, use very various forms of biohacking to, to boost their metabolism. Um, but then biohacking also obviously goes into um, using nutraceuticals that, for example, boost brain function. Um, lots of people, for example, use modafinil, which you could also kind of say that this is like biohacking. Even like Adderall, in some sense, would be a form of biohacking. It's essentially like hacking your system to behave somewhat differently. Um, there's also a lot of um, research around meditation, for example. Meditation could be could be considered a form of biohacking um, to gain more focus, to gain more clarity. Uh, yeah, and then, I mean, I mean, this goes pretty far into, for example, like another community that I found really interesting was um, a um, like HIV communities that were essentially developing their own gene therapies um, to, to, yeah, to actually overcome, um, the, the disease that they had. Um, so gene, like gene, gene therapies would be another form of biohacking. Um, so it's not, it's not as in the, like the, the cyborg sense, it's like implanting someone in, but that could be, that could be considered biohacking as well. Uh, it's essentially how do you hack your own biology through, um, the means of, of substances through the means of, um, how you change your behavior. Um, yeah. Incredible. Okay. So, and you also mentioned that there, there's this movement of open source, uh, you know, medicine creation. I, I don't even know what you really, you, you actually call that, but um, that's super interesting. Is that because the U S healthcare system is just so fucked up? Um, I, I think in many cases, yes. Yeah. So there's a, I mean, there's a movement, um, actually this was really inspiring to me and to, to, to our team in the early days as we built Molecule called the Open Source Pharma and the Open Source Pharma Foundation. Uh, and so there's, there's many areas of medicine that are just not interesting to, to pharma companies. Um, often these can be, for example, like rare diseases, uh, where the patient populations are, are just too small. And so pharma companies are not interested in bringing a drug to market. Um, and then, for example, the FDA gives special um, uh, kind of special approval methods to to those disease areas. Um, you have the orphan drug designation, for example, 
Um, but even despite that, it's 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 an uphill battle to actually get a drug approved. You need uh, you need enormous amounts of capital to bring a drug to market. Uh, and in other areas, for example, in in tropical diseases like malaria, for example, um, that affect millions and like hundreds of millions of people across the world. Even I think COVID may have changed this, but before COVID, I think malaria was one of those diseases that killed most people around the planet. Yet we we still, since the 80s, 90s, have not been able to to develop like an effective vaccine or really effective um, effective long term treatments for malaria. Um, so this open source pharma foundation essentially consists of um, uh, researchers around the world that banded together and said, um, so these these are various universities. I think it's um, uh, UCL, for example, um, various Australian universities, Indian universities, where essentially you have researchers that are committing new drug targets um, to an open source repo. Um, you can actually find them on GitHub. So they use GitHub to do this, um, open source malaria. It's also open source mycetoma, which is another tropical disease. Um, and what's really interesting there though, and so typically this type of work has been funded by organizations then like the Gates Foundation, um, or, um, yeah, or other international organizations that feel it's, that feel it like, it's like humanitarian work in a way. Um, but those organizations often just lack the funding to actually then bring a drug to market in the end. And they often just get stuck in, in, in the best case in first or second stage of clinical trial. And but so this open source pharma foundation and this is something really interesting to fundamentally realize about about drug development and, and the patent system so as soon as you as soon as you for example these researchers would upload or they still do they upload drug targets um like new discoveries that they have of what could be a potential treatment to the github repo and then they kind of discuss it in a very open source way and that's a completely different way than how the let's say biotech companies work or the pharmaceutical system works because as soon as you, as soon as they make one of these GitHub commits, essentially that drug target, and they say this here's a new molecule, this could be used to treat uh, to cure malaria in this in this case, that immediately upon doing that, that drug target or like that molecule becomes unpatentable, because now you have prior art. So as soon as you have prior art, you're not able to file a patent application, um, and and it's it's actually it's really powerful if you think about it, because now no one is ever able to patent that. But because no one is able to patent it, you're unable to ever bring it into this like this long pharmaceutical development pipeline. Because even organizations like the Gates Foundation will not fund your work anymore. Because if it only so now the only potential for this drug ever is to become a generic, because no one can patent it. And the problem with having a drug immediately as a generic, and this is actually the same case that was true with these like psychedelic compounds, like many of these psychedelic compounds, as soon as you say, hey, here's a new psychedelic compound, it could be used to treat depression. And you publish that in a public forum, it becomes technically unpatentable for that indication. And the problem now is that nobody, like no organization in the world, or like maybe in the future, this will be different, but in the current system will now pay for the clinical trials to bring it to market because there is no way to recoup the high costs. And the cost for like a, a, um, a third stage clinical trial can be, it depends on the indication, but can be in the hundreds of millions. And if the drug can only be a generic, you're never now going to find a partner, like a pharmaceutical company, a, a partner that will help you kind of shoulder the costs, even if it's paid with public funding to, to bring it to market. Um, and this was a huge insight. So, and essentially these researchers in this like that are in 
open source malaria. Um, I, the last time I checked in was like about like it was like, like mid 2020. Um, but they're not able to get funding for any of the drugs that they that they develop. Um, another example could be that if you're a researcher at a university and you publish a blog post about a new molecule that you believe could cure cancer that you just discovered, that it will never make it to market <laughs> because you can't patent it anymore. Um, so yeah, we could actually have amazing cures out there that would work. Um, but in, due to the way that innovation works uh, in terms of protecting patents and then shouldering the high costs to get to an FDA approval, you'll never be able to recoup those costs. Um, wow. Okay. So, so what, what is the, you said that, that these people are uploading this research to GitHub and I'm, I'm a complete noob here, but are, it, it, does this research look like code or is it like actual written papers that uh, go into depth on, on more like theory or how does that, how does that actually look? It could be both. I mean, it could be, um, uh, in most cases, it would just be a data set, for example, um, or, uh, yeah, that describes a new molecule. Okay. So, and also wh why is pharma research so expensive? That's, that's a good question. So we actually at market, we believe it could be much cheaper if it was coordinated in a better way. Um, so like the innovation processes and the way that research is done in pharma and, and then specifically the approval process is extremely bureaucratic and hasn't really evolved in the past um, 30, 40, 50 years. Like the way that the FDA approves a drug today and the, the hoops that companies need to jump through haven't really evolved. Um, despite there being so much new technology available. And I think this is more like a cultural and, and bureaucratic problem. But also because of that, I think many pharma companies have, have barely evolved. And I think some of it is a little bit comparable to like the banking industry. Like I think the banking industry has only started evolving in the past 10 years in the wake of fintech. Um, because fintech is actually starting to really hurt their bottom line and take away customers and hurt their margin. And I think we haven't seen any similar developments in in the, in the pharma space. And it's actually good. If you think about it, it's good for them that it's really expensive to bring a drug to market because it means that they're the only ones that can bring drugs to market. Um, and it's chronically hard. For example, like many biotech companies will never have an intention of actually bringing a drug to market themselves because they know at the end of the day, they won't be able to, to shoulder those high end stage costs. So what typically happens is that you um, you have a biotech company, for example, that spins out of a university um, and then goes through several financing rounds um, until the VCs that are actually financing that biotech company, uh, their LPs are pharma companies themselves. So the typical the typical path is either um, is typically to become an, an acquisition target for a larger pharma company that can then take the assets within that biotech company and actually bring them to market. Um, or what often also happens is that these companies IPO in order to, to be able to raise enough continuous capital. Many of them that IPO typically actually don't make it to market <laughs> or they end up then selling one of their lead assets. Um, and, and like many of them also become these zombie companies where they're like, they just keep existing <laughs> despite, um, despite not having a clear path of when one of their drugs could, um, yeah, could come to market. Okay, so let, let's pretend that the regulatory um, agencies that are approving the the, the these me these you know medicines and and kind of the, the the pharmaceuticals, let's pretend that that process is super simple and super cheap. Is is that cost then brought down by like ninety you know ninety five percent, 
and, and then also like is the main cost of of researching pharmaceutical stuff is that through is, is that just labor costs for, for people kind of testing all that stuff out yeah i mean so in the you can differentiate between like the preclinical stages and then uh, clinical stage drug development um, in the preclinical stages, costs have come, come down tremendously because increasingly you can do a lot of outsourcing. And so, so for example, if you have a certain compound today, as you can choose from um, probably hundreds of providers today that can run standardized preclinical trials for you. These could be toxicology reports, essays, uh, fly studies, mouse studies. Um, that would determine whether it's even whether, like, let's say if a, if a compound isn't, um, let's say, toxic in mammals in the first place. Um, you test it in human cell cultures, and then you use all of that data to obtain um, an approval, like in, like in, you do an IND application to, to, do, to obtain an approval to go and move into clinical trials. And in clinical trials, you're going to be testing the compound in humans. And that essentially becomes much, much more expensive. But so an interesting thing, for example, is if we compare this with these open source communities that I described earlier, here you have an open source community that would try to obtain a certain compound uh, now, typically, for example, these aren't cancer therapeutics, so it's a very different ballpark. But if you're, for example, now testing a drug in, for like, if you were, uh, if you were chronically depressed and you hear, hear about a new substance online and you would obtain it and it would actually help you, and that that drug may have never gone through the typical preclinical costs and of the of the the approval and application process, and so so technically, what it's very expensive for a drug already to get into the first stages of clinical trials, um, where you kind of test a drug then in a small patient population. Um, but on the, like, I think, for example, drug costs could be, could be brought down exponentially um, if there was a more open source and anecdotal culture of how actually drugs are tested in certain indications. Um, but OK, back to your question. So there's the preclinical costs. Those have come down a lot because we can increasingly do outsourcing. And outsourcing just means that, and for example, we work with a company called Arcturus. Um, they're a CRO robotics laboratory. Um, so they essentially, they have robots that run an automated lab that will test your compound. So you can just tell them, hey, I want to test the following compounds. Please run the following experiments. They will get it synthesized for you. They will then test it in their lab and they will upload the data to the cloud. Or in our case, they would upload the data to an IPNFT. Um, and because there's a lot of outsourcing happening, the costs around this have become increasingly competitive. So let's say 10, 20 years ago, it, 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 didn't, make sense, it didn't make sense to start a biotech company with like, let's say, less, five, less, less than 5 to $10 million in funding, just because you had to build your own lab, you had to get all of those stuff yourself. Uh, increasingly, you can do a lot of outsourcing. Um, it hasn't, it's still more difficult, though, in, uh, in actually the clinical trials process, where you can't really cut costs that easily. I think what we can do, though, is we can um we can uh, do like enable a lot more coordination and the other thing is the enablement of uh, decentralized clinical trials so typically when you do a clinical trial it's it's very expensive to find patients to to run the trial with then to coordinate the patients then you need to bring them to a central location to monitor the effects and all of that and just the yeah regulation around that is very stringent but so one solution to that could be and this is also this is a huge hope and actively being worked on is, is having more decentralized clinical trials. Um, and then maybe a last component of the high cost is really uh, each player in the current pharmaceutical system, it, like you have to imagine these assets kind of get passed on from company to company. And so if a biotech company gets uh, goes through an acquisition, uh, 
and and like an asset could go through multiple acquisition cycles. So like let's say it leaves a seed stage startup and goes into a B series funded startup, <laughs> and then that B series funded startup eventually sells it on to like a larger pharma company. Each each kind of each transaction in that obviously in that value chain, the the people that transact in it and these typically tend to be like just financial transactions tend to add costs on because everyone's trying to make money with it, right? If I bought it for this much, I want to sell it at least for like a 5x to make a 3x return. We invested like 2x of the costs and so on and so forth. And in the end, the pharma companies still need to make a lot of money with it. Um, and maybe then a last thing to say, and then um, we can go on to your next question. The actual really, so all of these financial transactions add a lot of costs. It's kind of like the Wall Streetization of this entire value chain. Um, but the other the other component of why the cost so high is because so many drugs fail. So like for each one drug that comes to market, like pharma has like let's say twenty duds that didn't work. And so if that, you have to imagine if they buy twenty drugs for like a hundred million dollars each, uh, which is often I mean often the costs are much much higher. And then due to how the system works, and the system is quite inefficient in actually identifying targets that could work, because it's very closed. Um, uh, and like there's this principal agent problem in terms of how assets are transacted. If I'm selling you a drug as a biotech company, I actually only have incentive to show you the good data. So we could run 50 studies on this new cancer drug and like 48 of them show that it doesn't work. And two of them show that it kind of works. One of them is inconclusive. We'll show you the two studies that work. And if you're desperate enough, you'll buy it. And then, but, and it might work, but it, also based on if the data was more open source, it could have been identified much earlier that the drug doesn't work. So now let's say then this drug is bought by a large pharma company. They take it into stage one trials are kind of maybe working, but also inconclusive stage two is a massive failure. And at this point, they've spent an enormous amount of money to discover in stage two that the drug didn't work. And maybe it could have been, if the data was more openly shared, it could have been discovered in like, let's say end late stage preclinicals that actually this drug was never supposed to go to market in the first place because it doesn't work. So all of the cost of the, those failed drugs are offset to patients in the end. And that's actually like all of that taken together is what makes drug development so expensive today. Um, so maybe as a last analogy, it's a little bit like if I, I used to make this analogy in the beginning, if IBM was developing like a social media app and it had a mandate to develop this app by the government and no one else is allowed to develop a social media app and it takes them eight years and it's a really crappy app. And in the end, it costs you like a thousand dollars a month as a subscription fee. And, um, and you have to send 50 cents. You have to pay 50 cents for every DM that you send on this app. Uh, and then they have a, like a 15 year, like, like, um, exclusivity on like social media apps. And that's a little bit how pharma works today. <laughs> and not, not like nothing against IBM at all, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm just more using them as an example of like, like, software incumbents um, and how and so open source software completely changed how we engage with apps and like you can ask ourselves why is why are apps free whereas um uh whereas let's say 20 years ago you still used to go to like a, a store and buy a physical cd that had a cd key on it um pharma is still in that level of innovation of like having to go to a store and buy like a microsoft cd with a cd key wow okay so I'm from, you know, from everything you're telling me, just insane inefficiencies that are currently kind of ingrained in the system. And, you know, with with, with your interests, which are open source pharma, economics, uh, Bitcoin, et cetera, open source, um, you've essentially started this company called Molecule, 
So could you tell me what is Molecule and why is it exciting? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so at Molecule, we're really trying to um, virtualize and decentralize how drug development works. Um, so the two core, like if you, if you look at this, it, like from a meta level, the two core value drivers in, in drug development and in, in biotech and pharma are on the one side, it's intellectual property um, through the form of patents or early stage IP, um, essentially just data around a new molecule. And and on the other and on the other side, it's data produced about these compounds. So we just talked about these expensive clinical trials and so on. But so essentially, it's companies that that claim innovation through a patent, for example, and then they raise funding to produce data. If we think about data, I mean, data has increasingly become a virtual asset, really, since the seventies and eighties. Um, before that, we still used to have data in like these giant filing cabinets. Like, um, but so data has increasingly become virtual. Uh, on the other side, intellectual property has never really become virtual. Um, it's still like a box of papers that you file from a lawyer that you get filed by like, yeah, um, uh, <laughs> a lawyer and then granted a patent by the US government. Um, but so if you think about intellectual property, it's actually the perfect asset class to virtualize uh, because it doesn't exist, right? It's like... <laughs> Um, it, it, like it exists in, in terms of being granted a unique right, but it's not like it's something physical. It's not like real estate. It's not like a car. It's like, it's like intellectual property. It's like, a, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, essentially what we do at Molecule is we attach both data and um, these IP rights to uh, non-fungible tokens and NFTs. And then we bring the, the core IP into Web3. Um, so and there we've developed a new framework uh, called an IP NFT. And so essentially what we're, we, we, at Molecule, we think of pharma and biotech development as a marketplace. Um, and if, if you, I, I kind of described this pipeline earlier. So pharma is one of the last big pipeline models where IP is owned by a single company and then passes through the pipeline. And then eventually it's like essentially, um, it's brought to market by a single company. And most pipeline business models have been disrupted by marketplace models over the past 20 or 30 years. Um, and we think that, uh, and this isn't necessarily about disrupting pharma, it's about making pharma and biotech development much more efficient and to bring down the costs, both for incumbents, but especially for patients and for researchers. And um, so what we built is, and maybe to use so just some crypto terminology, in essence, a, a mixture between an open sea and a research gate that enables researchers, biotech companies, um, universities across the globe to essentially mint their research and their IP into an IP NFT. So you can imagine a drug discovery um, department at a university can create a portfolio of their research projects through our framework and essentially port their IP into Web3. Um, and what this now does is it makes the intellectual property liquid, um, which, is, which is very hard to achieve in in biotech today, like biotech investments tend to be super illiquid because it takes so long to bring drugs to market. And then you have transactability before, but transactability on a patent basis is, is quite expensive. Um, and NFTs make that really cheap, hyper liquid. And they also enable price discovery around IP, which is another thing that that's not really valuable. So typically you would only have price discovery for IP through like public market listings. But that's also been something, yeah, also quite an inefficient price discovery mechanism because then you have very stringent reporting around the data. 
Um, so what we had as an as an early vision for Molecule was really so what if you what if you essentially made uh, created a curation market. So this is based on some of Simon de la Rubia's early thinking of like, let, what if we had markets for memes where people could just like trade and discover and curate the most promising memes? And some of our early thinking was in essence, hey, wait, what if we had like a meme market, but for therapeutics and for drugs, where now patients, researchers could um, essentially enable in price discovery for, um, for therapeutics together. Um, and now those therapeutics would live off data that people commit. Uh, or data that that kind of flows into the data repos attached to these um, to these drugs that are being researched, which would then garner more attention. Um, and then, so for example, positive data would increase the price of a therapeutic, and negative data would decrease the public perception and price of a therapeutic. Um, so th this is the baseline of thinking, and and so we've essentially we're working with universities across the globe that upload their IP, and then um, this could now be purchased by um, uh, essentially by, by anyone. So we're trying to build the system in a very open way. But on the other side, we started realizing um, uh, it's probably not going to, it's not going to be industry and like industry incumbents that will be first to use like new frameworks like this. Um, but it would be um, it, like, ideally it would be folks that are already in Web3 that are native to like owning an NFT. Um, but then we thought it might not be efficient to have the typical, let's say NFT speculator audience actually engage in this IP uh, and like own it because um, because ideally you want to make you want to make the IP productive. So let's say the researcher then has the like the following data emerges, you would then need to define the next steps of the experiments to actually move this closer to market and move it closer to patients. So what we started doing um, at the same time to actually uh, essentially really make this marketplace productive is uh, to build uh, biotech DAOs or we call them bio DAOs. Um, which essentially now function like new biotech research collectives um, that are comprised of patients, of investors, of researchers in that specific therapeutic area, uh, and actually, yeah, actually develop those drugs. Um, so I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with um, a DAO called Flamingo DAO. Uh, Flamingo DAO is actually a huge inspiration to us. Um, I mean, it's, it's essentially a DAO that curates and collects an amazing collection of, of NFT artworks. Um, and so we launched, uh, we helped birth and launch MetaDAO in, this was in June last year, June 2021. And MetaDAO essentially builds, curates, and collects um, IP NFTs focused on longevity research. Uh, so this is one of the first kind of really fully functioning biotech DAOs that, that we've seen or that we're seeing in the wild, only focused on longevity. Uh, there's another one that we're building now in, in psychedelics research, uh, focused on psychedelics and mental health. Um, that will, in a similar vein, also be building a portfolio now of these IP assets and, and making them productive. Um, and there's already actually a large amount of in, industry interest to collaborate with, for, for industry to collaborate with entities such as VitaVal, um, because industry is really interested now in the steel flow that is being created here, in like this IP that is being researched and discovered. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, uh, then again, incredible. My mind is like just being blown nonstop, but okay, let's go back to molecule. So yeah. I, I'm a little confused on, and, and it's my fault, but the, the efficiency gains you get from putting this data and IP rights onto the NFT, why is that important? I, I you, you said that it, it creates a more liquid market, but, but if, if that information is on this NFT, can't anyone come and kind of claim that and read it? And then it's, it's essentially open source. So 
what is the why is there value attached to that nft yeah of course so the way that our um, ipnft works the the ipnft is two consists of two core components so on the one side it's a one-to-one legal agreement uh, so, Andrew, if you went onto our kind of onto our app um, and uh, let's say you found um, an asset there from your favorite longevity researcher at MIT and you said and he's looking to raise some funding for a new set of molecules that he's looking at um, to and, and he wants to run the following experiments. So, for example, he says, I'm looking for two hundred thousand dollars in funding uh, to complete the following experiments. And then um, and this will be one way to engage. And then you engage through something that's called a sponsored research agreement. So you, Andrew, it's typically not natural people that do this, but let's just use that as an example. You would actually then enter into a, uh, into a sub-licensing agreement or something that's called a sponsored research agreement with MIT to sponsor the following, um, the following work. And as a result, you would now own the IP and the data that results from it. Uh, and that IP agreement is actually encrypted. So like, the owner of the NFT would be able to like actually like see the license agreement and everything, but the identity of the molecules or the resulting data is not kind of made available to the public unless you do that. And so on the one side, it's this legal agreement for someone to to essentially license you a certain a certain amount of work, a certain amount of IP. And on the other side, it's um, a, a data storage um, layer that lives on top of Filecoin. Some of the metadata is on Arweave, some of it is on Filecoin. And it's a data, it's an encrypted data access control system. Um, to, to make that very simple, the NFT now has a kind of like is linked to like a decentralized Google Drive, where you as the NFT holder get to grant access rights to different parties. So the researcher now uploads uh, his or her data into that data storage, and you get to see it and you get to give other people access. So now you could say, I want to give, a, there's another research team that I also want to be working on this. And I'm going to pay them another 100K and they're going to deliver the following data assets into this repo as well. You could also show your friend at Harvard Medical School. He's been looking into this and now he, you tell him about this work and you very easily simply grant him access rights. And then a year later, like a biotech comes along and they hear about this work and they're interested in looking at it. So you're like, cool, let me grant them access rights as well. Um, they can DD some of the work. Um, through you granting them access rights, and then they make you a bid on chain to buy the IPNFT from you. Um, yeah. So that could just to actually explain how the IPNFT works. But the really cool thing about this now is this data is typically stored on, it's either stored on company owned servers, uh, it's, it's transacted in through like PDFs and emails. Um, they're kind of granting access control to the data stores that I described is like follows the same like NDA like patterns. So like if you are the owner, you obviously don't want to invalidate your own IP, right? At the same time, if you wanted to, you could just open up access to that data repo. It's kind of like having a private GitHub repo that you can add different collaborators to or making it a public GitHub repo. And actually at the point, if you decided now to, to patent this discovery or these molecules, Essentially, what the IPNFT now grants you is essentially everything that you need to go to the patent office with. <laughs> it's essentially saying you're the legal owner, you outlicensed this from MIT, and who here's all the data that proves that this could work in the following indication. Based on that, you could be granted a patent. And this is this is what makes this is what makes the whole research really valuable. Um, the cool thing about this is now you can transact both the data and the IP, like the legal rights, in the same way that I can send you. Um, a crypto kitty on my phone or like a crypto fund. 
like same programmability. You could also now make the IP fractional, for example. So VitaVal is currently exploring fractionalizing one of its first IP NFTs. Um, that doesn't mean, again, that the holders of those fractions get to access the IP, they, they get to access the data. Um, but you can build, you can obviously now build all sorts of funky, let's say, open source collaboration methods in there. For example, you could say, if someone contributes the following data set, which I need to develop this, um, from some university, for example, you say, hey, anyone who can do the mouse studies gets 2% of the asset. And then some university can come and they can say, hey, actually, we're interested in this work and we can do the mouse studies. We'll take 2% and we also want 20K from you. But it's not going to cost the 150K that it normally costs. So you're starting to decentralize ownership of the asset um, and kind of make the whole development process much more modular. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So is it is it fair to say that Molecule, if we had to give Molecule, Molecule a one-liner, Molecule is a drug development research marketplace. Is is that like a like a simple one liner? Yeah, you could also. I mean, we um, you could say, for example, decentralized biotech protocol. Okay, okay, that that that, that, that sounds way better. Obviously, <laughs> all right. And and then, would you say the mission of Molecule is to broadly open up the market so you know to more participants, so more research happens? Yes, absolutely. So it's really to democratize access um, in the same way that the internet democratized access to, to information. Uh, I think for us, this is really about democratizing access to medicine. Um, and if again, if we think about this whole development process, there's two user groups that are enormously user groups in the sense of like, this is a value creation process. Um, there's two user groups that are fundamentally disenfranchised today. And those are researchers, the people that are actually doing the work they don't typically, they typically get to see no upside unless they go in like in really in, into the hardcore, like biotech VC, um, biotech startup, like IPO route. Many of them don't want that. They're actually really keen to provide value to patients. That's why they became researchers in the first place. But so empowering researchers to become co-owners of, of the IP and of the upside. Um, and on the other side, patients. Patients are really the most disenfranchised people in this entire process, but they're the ones that stand to benefit the most and, and that need access to new to new medicine the most. Um, and uh, you'd be surprised, for example, like how much um, a cancer patient that has a rare type of cancer or how much a rare disease patient, how deeply familiar they are with their disease about their potential treatments, about what might work for them and what couldn't. And um, the current system just completely removes them from that process. If you have a disease, you, you get what's on the market. You don't get to determine its price. You have no influence on that. Um, and so I think there's actually an enormous potential here in the same way that, let's say, NFTs empowered, um, in many cases, disenfranchised artists across the globe to actually take power again of, um, of their creations. Uh, I think this, a similar thing is happening in the music industry at the moment. Um, we believe that, like, that NFTs in, in the medical space and like these IP NFTs can actually really fundamentally re-empower um, uh, yeah, the creators and, and the benefactors of um, uh, yeah, therapeutic. <laughs> okay, so I, I definitely see how everything that you've built so far is is massively more efficient than the current system and just better overall. But how does what you've built how how does the how do the regulatory agencies interact with that? Is is are they still a massive inefficiency and blocker? Um. So actually, so, so we're currently really focused on let's say early stage preclinical development. So getting IP out of a university and getting financing, for example, for a, 
for a researcher or a laboratory or a team that, look, that is looking for, let's say, 500K, at 200K, 500K, maybe up to a million to complete preclinical studies. And there's, also, there's something that's known as the, the valley of death. So in this entire process, a lot of innovation never even makes it out of academia. And many, many pre-seed and like seed stage biotech companies just die, not because their innovation wasn't good, just because like there's a lack of funding, there's a lack of discoverability. Um, it's very difficult to actually discover this IP today and kind of know what's in the market. Um, Pfizer, for example, um, has for the entirety of North America has 12 drug scouts or like, like business development managers that, man, that are trying to source IP and work with universities to, to, to find. Um, and, but so coming back to your question, so we tend to be quite focused at the moment on like early stage development where the regulatory overhead is quite small. So like the regulatory overhead really increases once you move into like the clinical stage, once you file for an IND. Um, I think as a, as a startup and like as, as some, like I think as a, let's say as a, as a crypto slash, let me say that again, as a crypto project that's really trying to bridge into the real world, it's super important to pick your niche. Um, so we are really focused on like the early stages of development at the moment, where also the funding requirements are large and the regulatory overhead is quite low. Um, and then what we're seeing, for example, so these IPNFTs are fully forward compatible. So they can be purchased by a biotech company or a pharma company that can actually then continue developing the drug. So for the time being, I think, and also while the Web3 space is still quite small, um, we're really trying to accelerate innovation in their early stages to broaden the funnel. So kind of enabling more great um, therapeutics to come into the, clin the clinical stage in the first place. But knowing very well that we won't have, let's say, the capacity yet, I think even as a community, to steward a clinical trial. Um, I think over time, though, like the DAOs that we're building and like these biotech DAOs um, could really like essentially start doing their own clinical trials. I think that would be an absolute dream. Um, they can create their own spin-off companies. And then, and then could orchestrate clinical trials. Um, but I think for the time being, uh, there's just not enough liquidity and, and enough real world integrations for that to, yeah, for that to work efficiently. So can you walk me through like the dream scenario from start to finish of research and drug development? If people are utilizing Molecule and VitaDAO and, and all, all these other kind of, all this kind of, all these other products and things that you guys are building. Yeah, just take me like walk me through from start to finish how that would work uh, like f on a mechanical level. Um, okay, that's a big question. Um, you 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 can make it super simple. Like uh, <laughs> person at MIT researching drug, then me as yeah. investor, I go buy the thing and so on and so forth. Um, research at MIT developing a new like rare disease molecule um, that could be promising uh, gets financed by a rare disease DAO that also finds this approach really promising, um, kicks off initial studies uh, with kind of the, like, let's say 300K in financing that, uh, that she received. Uh, IPNFT is now co-owned by researcher 10%, university 20%, and rare disease DAO 70%. Um, uh, rare disease DAO initially now commissions a, a initial findings of promising Rare Disease DAO commissions two uh, CROs, one in Singapore, uh, one in India, to also begin working on this on this compound. All of those data flows and kind of pays them both in 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 shares in the IPNFT, uh, so like in sub tokens of the IPNFT, uh, as well as in in uh, in fiat. 
um, those additional data flows start flowing into the IPNFT. Um, together with another rare disease patient foundation, uh, IPNFT is then spun into a small biotech company um, that is almost already at IND approval stage. Or the data was procured in like a fraction of the time as, as it normally would, uh, because the rare disease now is working with, um, uh, let's say, other researchers uh, and legal counsel that have actually helped shape and kind of just expedite the value of the IP and kind of what, what experiments to focus on very quickly. Um, and then biotech company, ideally, biotech company is formed and is now fully owned by patients and by this rare disease style, which also mainly consists of patients, um, and but also like investors. Um, and uh, ultimately biotech company is able to get funding from that structure. You probably then need about 10 million, 20 million plus in funding to perform the first stages of clinical trials. First stages of clinical trials are quite promising, um, uh, which prompts the interest now of a of a larger, maybe pharmaceutical company. Um, and now patient groups and pharma company agree that the DAO will continue financing the asset together with pharma company, but pharma company will start expediting all of the clinical trials just because they have a much bigger machinery in the current system to do that. Um, and and the the part of that agreement is that once drug reaches the market, it will not kind of it will not be sold. Let's say over maybe four x or like three x the cost of what it took, uh, what the entire development took, um, provided that both pharma company and like rare disease DAO continue to share the cost of the development. Um, again, three years later, drug actually maybe gets FDA approval. That would be incredibly that would be incredibly fast. But I actually think if you if you do more efficient coordination um, around trials, that could be possible. Uh, and then end result could be uh, you now have a drug that is still majority patient owned, um, where also a pharma company is making money off of it, but their input was much lower. So they're also happy to take a much lower kind of cut on future revenue. Um, and our pharma company uses their supply chain and kind of their network of pharmacies to actually very efficiently distribute this um, this drug to doctors um, and to patients uh, without kind of needing to, to actually overcharge on it to make to make up for kind of their losses in yeah in other areas. <laughs> uh, no, I, amazing. Th th yeah, th 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 thank you for that that, that overview. I, I think I'm I'm beginning to understand kind of the, the full process from start to finish here. So so the the DAOs are, are a super essential part of, of this whole uh, structure here. And and the first DAO that you you helped set up was called is called Vita DAO. And you wanted to focus on, on, on longevity research. Was there a reason that you wanted to focus on, on longevity research first? Um, yeah, I think so. First of all, I, personally, I think longevity research is a really interesting uh, is a really interesting topic. Uh, it's like the holy grail of <laughs> of medicine. Um, and longevity is really interesting, also from an economic perspective, because essentially longevity is not about living for longevity research. In my eyes, is not about living forever. It's about living a much healthier, longer lifespan. So what if you could reach in like at the age of 120, 130, 140 maybe, I think it gets, gets a bit critical after that, but without the typical um, onset of um, age-related diseases, such as Alzheimer's, um, such as cardiovascular diseases, cancer. So essentially the question is more, how could we live a longer, healthier end of life without the typical, like, yeah, all bad, all of the bad side effects that come with it. It's the reason people don't wanna get old because like it's, because you have so many really shitty age-related diseases that set on, um, and those also cause 
across mass across to society. Um, so I think it's a really cool mission. And then um, aging research touches many areas of medicine, which for us as a, let's say, as a marketplace and as a protocol is interesting because it allows us to quickly branch out into all sorts of um, disease areas. Um, so that's the second reason. The third reason is I think aging research is, uh, should fundamentally be democratized. So a lot, the bulk of, let's say, aging and longevity startups are currently funded by, by billionaires. Um, and it's quite obvious if you, if you've made a lot of money in your life, you kind of want to like live it out for as long as you can. But I think there's a risk there because if like the, the richest people in the world live longer and longer and get richer and richer, um, that actually will fundamentally in the long run, I think, create an, an, an unjust society because wealth isn't, isn't distributed as much anymore. So like if, I don't know if like, um, if some, uh, yeah, if like a bad leader of a country can now go on his fifth or sixth or seventh uh, presidency term enabled by longevity therapeutics, that won't be good. But it's, and so at least let's ensure that access to democ uh, to longevity therapeutics is democratic and not, not so centralized in the hands of the few. Um, and then the last point is we as a, as a kind of as a community and as a marketplace tend to be super conscious of product market fit with Web3. Um, and so for the time being, I think it would be quite difficult to launch a, let's say a, a DAO focused on breast cancer research. And it's not that breast cancer research isn't a, like a really important topic. It's simply that the patient groups in that, that are affected by breast cancer wouldn't be as native to using discord and, and Twitter and MetaMask as the people that are interested in longevity research. Uh, I think that'll come over time. Um, one thing that I'm really, really excited about is essentially lots of patient communities are already quite digital. Um, they tend to have like massive Facebook groups where they coordinate events online, but they're not like, they're not in Discord yet. Um, and so lots of Web3 folks that I know got really interested in longevity research. Um, lots of Web3 people that I also know are interested in psychedelic research. Uh, so those are just areas and therapeutic areas that I think have a natural kind of product market fit for us at the moment, um, as we are still in the early days of, of building out um, yeah, building our traction. Awesome. Okay, so August of last year, Vita Dow. I think you you guys were able to transfer uh, some sort of IP on chain as an NFT. Could you describe mm -hmm. what that was? Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of the first uh, kind of full end to end out licensing events with a university. Um, this was with um, a professor uh, and uh, the leader of a laboratory called Dr. Morton Shabin Nutson. Um, he heads up the aging, um, the um, Chabinotsen lab and the aging research lab at the University of Copenhagen. Uh, so this was a, this is a study that's ongoing that's kind of analyzing 10 molecules that it could have life extenuating properties. And um, VitaDAO in this case now outlicensed the full IP from the university, um, paid for the research. Um, the researchers actually joined VitaDAO itself and also now participate in in, in the governance of VitaDAO through the Vita token. Um, so they actually receive tokens in the organization, uh, which is really interesting because now these researchers also then actively bring in other researchers and they bring in other interesting work that they're seeing to receive funding. Um, yeah, so this, this research was attached fully to an IPNFT and then VitaDAO purchased this IPNFT and the funds went to the university to kick off the work. Um, and now, for example, we're seeing other research groups within VitaDAO that are building on this research and that also want to collaborate with 
kind of this first study that they're doing, um, which is really exciting. So you're kind of like seeing these other researchers that come in that, that hear about the work and then are like, hey, I actually have a thesis here as well. And we should also investigate the following thing. And I can then make it a part of, of the work that you guys are already doing. Oh, and the, I mean, the, yeah, the work itself is about uh, essentially repurposing 10 molecules that have um, life extending properties statistically from a huge um, data set of the, the Danish population's medical records um, that they analyzed uh, so that the lab received access to from the Danish government and um, that they analyzed. And based on this now, they're running through a series of studies. Um, and these molecules can then be repurposed, most likely through an analog strategy, to potentially bring entirely new, um, yeah, longevity therapeutics to market. Um, yeah. Okay, so so if I am a regular person that's not not a uh, you know some sort of research scientist or dr drug development scientist, uh, what what part can I play in in VitaDAO? Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, so VitaDAO is quite interesting. If you go into the Discord, you kind of have a mix between uh, lots of people that are just really interested in, in longevity research. But like you said, they're not researchers, they're not scientists, but they want to contribute to the field. Um, they want to learn more about it. They want to connect with researchers. Um, and then I'd say the core of VitaDAO is really what is called the, the longevity working group, uh, which at this point I think is over, yeah, probably over 100 scientists from across the world. Uh, I'd say about 60 of them working very actively. Um, in some cases, we have MD, PhDs from Harvard. Uh, we have professors that were leading laboratories that have essentially left their academic post almost full time to work on this. And they are now constantly bringing in um, research to be funded by, by VitaDAO. And so as a, as a VitaDAO token holder, you can on the one side kind of um, influence the direction of what kind of work you would like to see funded. Uh, so, for example, you might have heard about a new exciting um, uh, supplement or a new exciting um, research path. So you could actively begin engaging those researchers, ask them about it, uh, and also suggest specific things to, to receive funding. Um, but ultimately, the kind of this longevity working group will then make proposals to the DAO and, and token holders uh, to essentially vote on what research should get funded. Um, and also then if like positive results are found over time, you as a token holder also then get to decide as a next step what to do with, um, with the research, um, which, which I also found really exciting. So like read it out could, and this goes back to something I said in the very beginning uh, about actually potentially open sourcing IP. So like that's just hypothetical scenario. If read it out discovered a, a, a groundbreaking new molecule that could make, let's say every human on earth at least 200 years old, and then VitaDAO was like, oh, actually, this is far too big to ever be owned by a single company. It's too influential to ever be commercialized. Let's open source it. So VitaDAO token holders could actually decide to just open source IP that they develop. However, they could also decide to, to sell it to a, um, another biotech company. And then essentially any kind of proceeds that come into VitaDAO through this process um, would be kind of re reinvested into further research. Um, so we hope that VitaDAO essentially becomes this just growing and growing decentralized collective that now democratically manages its IP and, um, and engages in a much more open kind of process and, and philosophical design thinking around how IP should actually be managed by, by humanity. Um, yeah, so this is how you could engage. <laughs> That's so freaking cool. It's, it's actually insane. All right. So... You, in your your long term vision is that there's different DAOs that are focused on different uh, I don't know what you call them like um, 
you know, f- pharmaceutical markets or focuses. Like, for example, you said the next DAO that you're, you want to launch is focused on psychedelics and mental health. And there'll be another one called Rare Disease, Rare Disease DAO and so on and so forth. So in your mind, there's going to be many different DAOs, each focused on different sectors of, of this market? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So what, what is I mean, this? Ideally, what? we hope, I mean, we, so what we're increasingly doing is we're, we're building like the, the DAO frameworks to enable that. Because we, like as a community um, and as a network, we essentially don't want to be in a position to like, to like launch all of these. They, they require an, an enormous amount of like um, uh, domain specific knowledge and specialization. And they're also best kind of, I think, in the hands of, of researchers and of patients, uh, of people that are actually really affected by these diseases. Um, so what we're, we're like, we're actively building some of them out, but over time, we actually hope that, um, that there will be a sprawling ecosystem that emerges, um, that builds on our frameworks or built on other frameworks and essentially help brings biotech DAOs um, to life. And then I think initially these organizations will, as I, uh, as I explained earlier, really fill this like preclinical funding gap and really just accelerate, help accelerate early stage research and innovation because that's where there's a huge need. But then over time, if they grow large enough, they can increasingly really move into the clinical trial stages. Um, yeah. Awesome, awesome. All right, so let's fast forward, you know, five, 10 years from now, what is your grand vision for everything that, that, that you're currently working on? Mm, well, <laughs> I think the, I mean, I think the really grand vision is that maybe a first, yeah, maybe really a first drug that, um, that was kind of enabled and discovered in this process was able to reach patients. Um, I think that could really happen in a, if that happened on a five to 10 year time frame, I would be, yeah, I'd be really happy. Um, and, and more so if that drug was developed at a fraction of the cost. Because I think this is what's really that's really possible here, and that's what's really possible with with DAOs. Um, what we found so incredible about the emergence of VitaDAO was that VitaDAO essentially turned into like a mid-sized biotech company within just comparably in terms of staff and in terms of knowledge, in terms of expertise, but in the course of three to six months, and and with much much less funding, and and often driven by people that are that are just really passionate about doing this, like. Drug development doesn't have to be like, it, it, sadly today, it's really often about profits and about <laughs> just about like revenue because you have a giant VC funded ecosystem that is optimizing for that. But I think we should optimize actually for, for patient centric healthcare. And, and if you then have people that are working um, kind of that are not, not on a voluntary basis, but you could essentially, you can coordinate people to produce the same outcomes at much lower costs. Um, so there's, there's many ways, obviously, that this ecosystem can go. Um, we're trying to build it in a very open source way. So also, if you want to, if, if you want to uh, create a DAO that is highly focused on like just maximizing profits from IPNFTs, you can obviously do that as well. So we're not, um, I think we're not trying to build, we're trying to build this system out as a very open and free marketplace. Um, but I think what would be really cool to see in the next five to 10 years is really one of these, one of these IPNFT based uh, drugs actually reaching patients and doing so at a much, much lower cost than is, is possible in the current system. Amazing. Awesome. All right. All right, Paul, are you ready for the closing questions? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Awesome. All right. What is your single favorite NFT that you own? <laughs> um, hmm. Hmm. Do you know Sad Girls? 
Sad Girls? Yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> uh, it's called Sad Girls Bar. It's like a project uh, by this um, really cool female artist called Glenn Beckett. And the principle is just, it's like these sad girls. They like have pizza slices in their hand and like it's like black and white and like quite a goth look. But it's like, uh, it's just, I find it funny. It's got a lot of zeitgeist, I think. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and I somehow I... got into the position of owning Sad Girls number one. So if there's any Sad Girls fans out there, like, <laughs> give me all <laughs> i love it i love it yeah no, normally i hear like punk sport apes etc but i've never heard of sad girls so that, that, that's very very cool all right what is your most controversial thought relating to the drug development industry probably that like <clears throat> if our legal system changed that we could actually treat soft uh, drug development like software um ultimately de like developing drugs is like it's impossible to do open source drug development today because of our legal system, but ultimately drugs are like, once you, once you get into producing them, they cost nothing. Like the, the cost of a pill, like it's different with biologic, but the cost of a pill is virtually zero, especially like once, once you get into chemical production. Um, but then these, these drugs are sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's really reminiscent, reminiscent of some, in some sense, of um of the software development industry in the late 90s and early 2000s so i think most controversial thought i do believe drug development could be uh could be like software development that's awesome okay so so could we could we do it in a safe way without the government definitely yeah i mean <laughs> i think I mean, I think what we're seeing more and more emerge in the web three space is actually very sound self-regulating um uh processes and principles like i think if you if you have completely open systems people will self-regulate and the government often regulates i think in very bad ways uh, and over time that regulation actually often becomes self-serving through through lobbyism i mean if you just we really have to ask ourselves like what kind of job has have the fda done in some cases in terms of like protecting um u.s citizens from the opiate crisis uh, I think it's so painfully obvious that some of these regulatory processes have like hurt patients and consumers more so than they've protected them. Um, and I'm sure like, I'm not based in the US, but I'm sure there's a long story that people can, can sing about the, uh, just into the financial regulation in, in yeah, in, in the web three space, um, and the role of government there. All right. You can snap your fingers and instantly solve one issue in the drug development research industry. What would it be? Patents. Okay, so so explain that. <laughs> Damn, I was hoping I wouldn't have to explain. That. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I think it's based on uh, on what we had before. I think if we had if we had uh, IP protection that was more like open source licensing frameworks as opposed to patents, uh, I think we could develop like much, we we could engage in much more open drug development. So if I could snap my fingers, I would hope that um, licensing frameworks in the pharma industry could effectively replace patents as drivers and protectors of innovation. Amazing. All right. Who is someone that you look up to and why? I hate myself. For, no, I don't hate myself for saying this, but like, <laughs> I, I do look up to Elon Musk to in, like, sometimes I think, I mean, on the one side, I think he's such a funny troll. <laughs> I mean, to sometimes have the audacity to just go out and, and, and kind of say that kind of stuff. But on the other side, I think he's someone who's inspired a whole generation of builders um, and kind of to like to push for the limits of what is possible. It's like if you want to like 
you can actually just decide to go to Mars and like, and like, and like, and if you, if you, if you stick with it for long enough, then like you have a fighting chance of doing that. And I think that type of, that type of behavior of like anything is possible is something I, I think we used to like our younger generations used to get that from like political leaders and like presidents. Um, unfortunately that isn't the case anymore today. I think like, I, 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 I I don't know anyone or like very few people who look up to like our political leaders, uh, but I think he's someone who really inspires us to build and, and to push for new boundaries. Um, yeah. And to kind of, to push for a better world. Um, yeah. Amazing. Oh, and, and right. actually a Vitalik as well, but yeah, I don't Love know. It. <laughs> Love it. All right. Last question. Where do you see IP NFTs in three years? Um, in three years, I think we, we could see a similar highly liquid market around IP assets um, through through IP NFTs. Um, and I think this could, and I don't think actually fractionization makes as much sense for normal NFTs. Like, okay, having fractions of a punk, yay. I even think like having fractions of the Mona Lisa, okay, it's fun, but like, you can't actively engage with it. But for IP NFTs, I actually think we could have a much, much more fractional market over time. So if you now, if, if, if you have this drug um, and it has a specific patient population or you have a bunch of researchers working on it, it would make a lot of sense for it to become fractional. Uh, so now uh, you as a patient could say, hey, there's this new, um, you're affected by a rare disease and there's a new drug and development that you hear about and it, it has the form of an IP NFT or several IP NFTs. And now you could contribute funding to that. Um, like you take $2,000 of your money and you say, I'm going to contribute funding to this, to this research. Uh, and now you don't just, um, and now you get to govern the future of that asset and you get to have a voice in terms of what the actual drug should be priced at when it comes to market. Uh, I think that's, I think that's really powerful. Um, so yeah, I really hope that, that um, yeah, we can enable, we can enable that market to, to exist. Um, and for IP through that, really for IP to become a public domain. Um, Amazing. Awesome. Paul, th this was just mind boggling. Like I, I feel like I just did a, a college level, actually no beyond college level course and everything about <laughs> drug development, drug discovery, et cetera. And it's really cool to see NFTs being used in, in a way that really truly matter. Not that all the other use cases don't matter, but this is, we're talking about like our healthier, which is obviously like the most important thing. And so it's just super inspiring to hear everything that you're doing and building. If people want to find out more about yourself, find out, find out more about Molecule or VitaDAO, where should they go? What should they do? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my DMs are open. Uh, please feel free to connect if you're excited about this use case. Uh, it's Paul, K-H-L-S. Um, on, on Twitter, uh, we're Molecule underscore DAO. Um, also, you'll easily find VitaDAO. Um, yeah, we're constantly looking for, for people that are, that are just as excited about this use case as we are. So please feel free to reach out and our website is molecule.to. Amazing. Paul, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. And, and yeah, I had a lot of fun, um, speaking to you and, uh, yeah, hope to speak, speak soon. Awesome, man. Thank you. Hey everyone. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.